Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Thomas Cooper, Ph.D., who is author of Fast Media, Media Fast. Today we will discuss media responsibility. Tom is a professor of visual and media arts at Boston's Emerson College. He previously taught at Harvard University and at the University of Hawaii. A former assistant to Marshall McLuhan, he is the co-founder and co-publisher of Media Ethics Magazine. He also serves as speechwriter for Johan Zeitz, who is the CEO of Puma. He can be reached at thomas underscore cooper at emerson.edu. Thomas underscore cooper at emerson.edu. Tom, welcome. Thank you so much, Elena. This is a topic that I think reaches far and wide. Many of us, I'm going to plead guilty on this count, have come to rely very heavily on what you call fast media. It has become our lifelink, certainly for business and for many people as a personal connection to friends and family as well. Would you help us get our arms around that? Do you have any statistics that you can share with us? Absolutely. Within the United States alone, in just the last 30 years, our overall media consumption has gone up 350%. So if it were two hours, uh, you know, just... 30 years ago, it would be seven hours then today. If it were three hours, it'd be 11 and a half hours today. And 11 and a half hours is what the average household is consuming if you consider the Internet, the handheld devices, uh, radio, television, um, and all that's yet to come. It's constantly changing and growing. And that is also mixed use because there are a lot of people that are multitasking. So they maybe have the, they have the television on and they have the radio on or perhaps they're texting and attending a meeting. What can you tell us about that? That's increased by 20% in the last five years among adolescents and teens alone. And the average adult is consuming two different media, three-fifths of the time that they're on any form of media. So let's say I'm in a restaurant texting. I may have the TV on in the background. I may be home watching my TV over the Internet. Uh, I may hear radio in the background or someone else's live streaming this or that. So three-fifths of the time that we're using one medium, we're also exposed to another one. What kind of an impact would you say this has on our span of attention, on our tension level in our lives? Is, is this having an impact? Absolutely. Um, if you read the research, you'll see that people are reluctant to say that increasing media consumption directly causes ADD, and yet they note that there has been a similar increase in ADD at the same time there's been a huge increase in media saturation. So we think there's a link, but it's yet to be absolutely proven with evidence. Also, I put together two, uh, over 200 studies in the last 20 years that have come out uh, about what's going on with teenagers and so forth. And this has been published in Pediatric Journal and other places. If you put together all of these studies, 
the greater the excessive consumption of mainstream entertainment media, the higher the odds a child will become either obese or ADD or alcohol or tobacco dependent or academically mediocre or poor or housebound, prematurely sexually active or pregnant, violent or and distant if not alienated from their parents and peers. Now, that's just uh, children. All of us, if you take away the demographics, consume over four years of television ads in our lifetime if we're an average American. So that means that four years of our lives are spent simply consuming messages which primarily tell us there's something wrong with you, buy something. There are exceptions to that, but that's a pretty amazing increase in our intake. If we look at societies that do not consume media, maybe no media at all, which is, I suppose, getting increasingly difficult, but is still out there, Mm -hmm. or perhaps low media, that they have a very limited access or consumption of media. What does that tell us if we compare it to our media-oriented society today? Yes, I found it very interesting to live with the Amish people, the the people you know for having no cars and very little electricity. Uh, They only use computers for business purposes and so forth. The Amish people, if you walk into a household, you might hear people singing together or you might hear people laughing and playing board games together or working together. It's very different than the average suburban house that I walk into in the United States. Otherwise, when I Maybe I hear two people yelling at each other. In another room, MTV is blaring. In another room, the door is closed because someone's looking at pornography. In another room, they're addicted to sports, and all you hear is the sports casting coming out. We've become kind of ghettoized or fragmented into different demographics by the media. Now, I, I don't mean to be overly romantic here because the downside of this is if I live in an Amish community and there's a nuclear reactor three miles away, and it has a meltdown, I may be the last person to hear about that. So certainly we need the media. I'm not trying to romanticize uh, a life without media. It could be devastating in some ways. We want to know when we have a hurricane or tornado warnings and so forth, we want the media. So it can actually save lives, and it can also change lives. People can hear a show or watch somebody being interviewed or see an inspirational uh, speaker or watch a religious service or hear music or a concert or theater on TV, for example, or the Internet, and it can change their life. So I, I don't want to romanticize people without media, but I do want to say there are a lot of advantages to living in a no-media zone and a lot of advantages to living in a low-media zone, just as there are a lot of advantages to living in a media-saturated zone if you stay in control of the media that you consume. It, it's perfect what you ended the sentence with because I was going to say maybe what we can do is reach a happy medium, manage our use of the media that we have available to us so that it doesn't take over our lives. Absolutely. Point one is to watch your consumption and to begin to see what that happy medium might be. Point two would be to also look at the content of the media because if you watch nothing but horror movies before you go to sleep, I'm sure you know the research shows you're going to have a lot more nightmares and a lot more trauma during the day as well than if you watch, for example, musicals before you go to sleep. So the content of the media also matters. But then thirdly, also watch who's in control. Who's in control? 
Every time I get in the car, do I have to turn on the radio? Every time I go home, do I have to pick up the remote? Every time I have a break in a sentence when I'm talking to someone, do I have to look at my smartphone? Or is it the other way around? I'm in charge. Those are the three most important things to look at, I think. How much is enough? Is there a guideline? Is there someone out there, perhaps you yourself, who has looked at media consumption quantities and determined the number of hours per day or per month? Or, in other words, how can we manage it and know that that's the right amount? Right. I think you'd need to have a team of experts together for every person. Each person has a doctor who tells them something a little different than someone else's doctor is right for them. And each person may have a life coach or uh, a partner or parents or others who have some insights as to what's excessive for them. So I think we'd have to do some research to become very precise about that for each person. But as a general rule of thumb, a person might ask, do I consume more media than sunshine? Because, you know, uh, being outdoors and fresh air and so forth is healthy. And we find that our children, especially, but all of us, begin to live in a wired womb where we no longer see the outdoors. Am I consuming more media than exercise? We know how healthy and important exercise is. Am I consuming more media than research? Uh, because research actually has experts involved. And if all of my news comes from tabloids and so forth and so on, I'm probably likely to live in a dream world. For example, I ask all of my students, do you have opinions about President Obama? Do you have pre- opinions about bin Laden? Do you have opinions about Lady Gaga or, or anybody else? I'll ask them. They'll all raise their hands, and then I'll say, have you ever spent eight hours with any of them off camera? None of them will raise their hands. So it's important to have actual research rather than just walk in a kind of dream world that most people walk in with opinions about everything. The latest story, did Brittany shave her head? Is Lindsay Lohan guilty of whatever? Um, is Casey Anthony guilty? Everybody has you know, an expert verdict on that, and yet none of them know the people. None of them have a PhD in law or whatever else it might take to really know whether someone's guilty or innocent. We all walk in, a, in an atmosphere of instant expertise in which actually we have no idea, really, what's going on. So it's very important to spend time outdoors, very important to exercise, very important to, to have expert testimony and research uh, when we consider things. And yet we substitute for that a kind of indoor wired womb dream world where we think we know things and we also begin to be couch potatoes. It's a big challenge, if I'm hearing you correctly, making a recommendation that applies to everyone. Each individual person needs to look at their life and their consumption and needs and figure out what works for them. Did I get that right? Yes. The book itself, Fast Media, Media Fast, has a lot of different approaches so that different people can customize the approach to what's right for them. So, for example, I've had some students who are obsessed with Facebook, and what they decide to do is to take a media diet from Facebook. They don't take a diet from uh, the news because the news may be important to them. They need to know if there's serial killers in their neighborhood or if there's going to be a hurricane tomorrow, whatever else. But they do take a media diet from what it is that's controlling them night and day. 
So one person's diet might be Facebook. Another person's diet might be pornography. 25% of all media that's manufactured now has a hard R or X-rated content. It's hidden from the public, but it's a huge uh, trend. Someone else's media diet might be soap operas or you know telenovelas or might be, for some people, sports. Many people are addicted. And in fact, one of the interesting factors I find is talking with divorce lawyers. They talk so much about why there's an increase in media-related divorce. That is to say, he will have a porn habit and therefore no longer be interested in his wife or she will be addicted to Facebook and he'll get angry and anxious that he can't talk to her or he'll say, wait until the commercials when he's watching sports or she'll be addicted to soaps or whatever else and they find that the other person is actually married to a machine, not married to a human being. And so that's one of the huge factors to look at as well. To what extent am I spending actual time with people Rather than with machines, we actually had a man in Japan two years ago marry his video game. Now, it was done partly as a publicity stunt, I would imagine, but I think he was half serious. I think the video game at least gave him the constant need fulfillment he wanted, whereas a realized human being has the audacity to get sick sometimes or to not want to be intimate sometimes or you know, to go through changes. We prefer things that are predictable, and so increasingly our machines are a source of steady comfort. It'd be far wiser to put up with the full spectrum of human behavior. Most psychologists would agree. And yet we find all of these changes going on in our society. We're losing more time to media. We're losing more money to media. It's gone up 300% in the last 20 years. That's huge. Uh, we're losing more of the environment to media. For example, every day a newspaper is made, a small forest is depleted for that one newspaper, very little of which is recycled. But we're also losing more relationships. Parents often can't get through to children who are addicted to smartphones. Spouses often can't get through to each other due to addictions. And so I think it's altogether healthier to examine our media control and our media consumption for almost every possible reason, our relationships, our thinking, our feeling, uh, our economy, uh, everything, our environment, and especially ourselves. Who are we under our programming? We often forget that we're not all the things swimming in our head. I wake up singing a song, for example, I'm a Material Girl, or maybe Katy Perry's Teenage Dream, uh, but I'm not a teenage dream and I'm not a material girl. How did those thoughts get there and do I really want them to control my thinking? Of course not. So even our identity is threatened by the media. Many people would probably hear our conversation and say, well, I can't function without my media. I can't work without my smartphone, my email, my computer, my iPad. What would you say to the argument that media has made them more productive and that it has become essential to their work persona, if not even to work and personal, but even the argument that it has become essential for work? What would you say to that? Whenever I take students on a media fast are incorporated into their classroom, I always make it a practical media fast. A practical media fast means 
you eliminate your guilty pleasures, but you don't eliminate essential media. So essential media would be whatever your boss needs you to consume. Essential media might also be if you're in another class, a teacher asks you to read a textbook or see a movie, you'd have to do that. If I take an airplane flight and they play a video about fastening my seatbelt and how to use my oxygen mask, that's essential to my safety. So I don't recommend that people go on a full blackout. A blackout is no media in your life. I simply recommend that they come to terms with what's controlling them so that they take control of their lives. And what's controlling one person might be totally different than another. It might be Twitter in one case. In another case, it might be, you know, uh, going to bed, watching TV at midnight and not being able to put down the remote until 3 or 4 in the morning. We actually have a group called Television Anonymous uh, where people have to actually confess that they have no control over television. They have still have a remote in their hand at 3 or 4 in the morning, and they have to get up and go to work at 5 or 6. So um, a person may, in an addicted situation, absolutely have to break out of that for their own survival and their own relationships, just as they would if they're addicted to alcohol or tobacco or anything else. And so we now have media addiction centers, not only in the U.S., I just heard about one in Taiwan. They're all over the world for people who actually can't change. So if a person says, I absolutely can't change, we should treat that as an addiction and try and get the person help. But if what they're really saying is, I prefer my media, I prefer my guilty pleasure, then I think we have to have some respect for that, just as if a person prefers to drink too much. At a certain point when it becomes dangerous to others, we step in. But if they just like to drink, we have to let them make health choices. If they just like to smoke, we have to let them make health choices. And if a person just likes to OD on media, we have to let them make health choices if they insist. But if they don't, my appeal to them always is try a media diet. You don't have to let go of all your media, just the parts that are controlling you and the parts that are obsessive. Um, and you may find that your relationships improve, that your health improves, that your money situation improves, that the time you have to do the things you really want to do, like perhaps care for people who feel neglected or your pets or your plants or the environment or causes or charity uh, or your own personal hobbies and creativity are the things that have built up in you that aren't getting done are bad grades. Those things will change. And so my appeal to a person is if you want to change, if you want to be a more creative person, if you don't want to die with your music still in you, there are ways to limit your consumption without eliminating your consumption. What would you say is the source? What is the reason that so many people are so dependent on fast media, as you call it in the book? All kinds of reasons. One is we love comfort, and media can bring us all kinds of drug-like comfort. It's therapeutic. Um, I mean, pornography has a very high rate of pleasure for a person who wants that. Uh, similarly, comedy has a high rate of laughter, which is an escape from our stress-filled worlds. Sports often has a certain theater or suspense to it that people can be addicted to. So there are many forms of addiction that basically provide comfort in our life or therapy or escape, and that's a double edge. There's nothing wrong with a little therapy. There's nothing wrong with a little entertainment. There's nothing wrong with a little comfort. Um, I'd much rather see a person in comfort than in pain. The problem is when we have so much of it that we avoid our problems 
we sweep our reality under the rug. We live in a dream world without realizing the impact we may have on other people. So that's when we need help, not when we're just consuming a little. Media can be very friendly, can be very positive, can actually inspire, educate, change a person's life. So I want to make it clear I'm not a media basher, but I am very much concerned with balance and with making sure that we're pro-social rather than anti-social in the way we live our lives. How do you know if you're overdoing it? It may be a fine line. It may be that you have just the right amount of media that is helping you do your work and providing you some of the distraction that you need. Or maybe you're just over that line. Is there a way that you can figure it out easily, if you will? You usually have signs from your environment. If you're watching it so much that you don't get much sleep, you begin to crash. You're tired, you're out of balance, you're out of sorts. If you're watching it so much that your family and friends can't get to you, they begin to let you know that. You know, like I've been trying to talk to you about this for a while now, and you say you never have time, and yet I see you watching the Red Sox every night or whatever, the Yankees, whatever else. Um, You begin to get feedback from your environment in all kinds of ways, if you're alert and if you're willing to listen to it. Just like your body tells you when you're having too much rich food or when you're drinking too much um, or when you're taking too many pharmaceutical uh, pills to be focused and clear. So if you're no longer really focused and clear in your thinking, or if you're getting feedback from your environment that you need to balance out or slow down, or if you have something called information anxiety, which is a term that Richard Wurham coined about 20 years ago, it means that you feel you can't ever keep up with all the faxes and voicemails and emails and tweets and upgrades and software changes and new technologies in your world. That's called information anxiety. If you have that, that's another signal. And many, many people, especially in the in the white-collar business world, feel they do have information anxiety. They just can't keep up uh, with all the changes and with all the volume of information and with all the messages they receive. Uh, and when they can, they feel they don't do a great job. They often have to hastily reply to emails or hastily um, you know, reply to voicemails or whatever else or find someone else to delegate it to. And uh, sometimes they miss important information. So all of those things are messages from the world that say slow down, prioritize, perhaps take a media fast or a media diet. And I would hope read this book. You know, I would hope they would take some time. We often say I need to read a good book or I need to make a change in my life uh, by virtue of something. Well, change to reading for a while. The electricity is almost electrocuting us over time. We have so much of it going into our body. We even have research now that says cell phones may be causing cancer or at least contributing to it because we put the electricity right next to our brain. So um, from time to time, it's important to read a good book or do something very different. Go for a walk, fresh air, take a vacation, spend time with a friend, actually be with that person in person rather than, quote, friending them on Facebook, which doesn't necessarily mean a deep friendship. So I hope these are helpful thoughts. Uh, I think definitely it's a point of reference for people who want to figure out whether they need to slow down their media consumption or maybe go on a media fast. What three tips, what suggestions would you share with our listeners who want to get a better handle on managing their media use 
say from a business perspective? Thank you very much. When Thoreau went to Walden Pond, it was to gain a perspective on his life. The last time I was there, there were two kids actually texting each other at Walden Pond. So you can't necessarily go to a geographical place anymore. But I'd say the first tip is to find your own inner Walden. In other words, find some way or some time to actually meditate on your life to see if the media is using you or if you're using the media. And so having some kind of inner Walden or a way to take a an hour or even a weekend to meditate on your priorities, your purpose, what you'd really love to do, and whether you're able to do that by virtue of your media consumption, whether you need to slow down or speed up, all of those things is tip number one. Get a perspective on your life the way that Thoreau did. Tip number two, pay very close attention to the people closest to you around you and see what their needs are and whether they're being fulfilled and also whether you're able to tell them what your needs are, whether it's your children, your parents, your best friends, your spouse, the person you're dating, whoever it might be, to make sure, and your pets and plants for that matter, but that the world that you're responsible for is really cared for in a genuine way and that you feel cared for too, rather than out of sorts, out of balance, out of alignment. So that's tip number two. Tip number three, ask people. You know, we all have confidence in our world, people who are, you know, um, very observant and we often call them our guides or our mentors. Some of us have a spiritual life, so we may have someone who's religious in our world who gives us input or a philosopher or a teacher or a mentor or a friend, you know, and just say to them, hey, you know, I'm noticing that I'm spending a lot of time on Facebook and I'm not doing this. Do you have any input on that? And uh, sometimes we get surprised by what people tell us. If we open ourselves for feedback from our families and friends, you know, I had a friend tell me the other day, his child said, Dad, I wish you'd throw away the cell phone because you just don't talk to me. You talk to it. And another friend who said, you know, my wife was saying to me, I am getting very angry about the fact that you're never available. And then I find out you're just on your laptop. You know, it's not that you're with other people. You're just on your laptop. So take the time to actually seek feedback and make the adjustments. And I guess a fourth tip would be go deeply inside yourself and say, who did I want to be when I was a child? What did I really want to do? What would I want on my tombstone? Would it be watched a thousand episodes of Survivor? You know, or would it be made a difference? You know, helped somebody to survive, um, added to the history of ideas, uh, had a creative, successful business that changed the world with a better product, um, created something audiences loved, you know, saved somebody's life. What would I want on my tombstone? Most people, it would not be, you know, watched a thousand episodes of As the World Turns. Uh, it would be something that made a major contribution. So, That's a a fourth tip as well. What would I like on my epitaph and how do I intend to get there? Thank you, Tom, for joining us from Boston, Massachusetts. Very welcome. It's been great working with you, Elena. You've asked wonderful questions and more power to you. Thank you. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Thomas Cooper, Ph.D., who is author of Fast Media, Media Fast, who discussed 
media responsibility. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com.